welcome everybody to hopefully the official Wright County GOP podcast. Um, at some point here, this will be posted. Uh, and I should also start off by saying that all of the views and opinions expressed within this episode are solely that of my guest and I and not representative of either the Wright County GOP executive board or the general board. These are uh, my weird opinions and any weird opinions um, and experiences that any of my guests will have. Uh, But today we have an absolutely fascinating Wright County citizen named Alyssa Hill right now, soon to be at some point Alyssa Jones. Um, She is my neighbor, uh, but she has an absolutely, like I said, fascinating, I would say, journey throughout her entire life. Um, And other than her military uh, experience, a Wright County citizen, right? Mm -hmm. That is correct. Okay. Um, So what we're going to do is we're basically just going to go through her life uh, and all of these different transformations that she has gone through and her journey. um, And uh, she's just going to tell us what brought her to all of these different things. Um, And it should be an incredibly fascinating however many minutes this will end up taking. Uh, (laughs) So let's start off by introducing yourself and tell us where you grew up. Um, Take us through high school, I would say. Okay. Um, Yeah. So in high school, those were very... Um, that's kind of where my life started to take a turn and where I was really struggling to find my identity. Um, I'll preface it by saying I come from a broken home. Um, I'm the only child between my mom and my dad, and my dad and my stepmom have three girls, and my mom and stepdad have five girls, so I'm the oldest of um, eight or nine girls. And I was struggling through high school because I wasn't sure who I was. And going through those years, you're really hanging out with your friends a lot normally and going out and doing things. And I grew up in a very toxic home and um, I wasn't a very good student. I really did not like academics. I hated all things school other than my friends. School for me wasn't about learning anything. It was more of an escape from my home. Wait, you grew up in? Rockford. Rockford. Yes. Yep. Sorry. I grew up in Rockford. Yes. And that's where I graduated from. Um, But yeah, so school was just, um, it was just my my safe place away from home because my home wasn't safe. Mm -hmm. And so... My form of punishment usually was that I would be um, grounded, but all the time. So I was isolated more than anything. I wouldn't even call it grounding. And um, my mom had gone back to work. She was a stay-at-home mom in my younger years, but then, you know, with all of us, it got to be, we got to be spread pretty thin. The house went into foreclosure a few times, and 
So I was kind of left to take care of my sisters and I had to grow up very fast. So while everyone was out exploring and trying new things and figuring out who they are and what they wanted to do when they grew up, I was at home being mom. And so that was um, very hard for me. And also, which kind of leads into my military experience, um, I was in a relationship for most of high school, uh, middle of freshman year to the middle of my senior year. And uh, that was a very unhealthy relationship. Everything that was unhealthy about me, I brought into that relationship and I just smothered him. It was a lot. (laughs) So, um, but he was in the National Guard. So when he ended that relationship, I was, I felt abandoned and I thought that the only way that I was going to feel better about it is if I one-upped him. So I decided to join the Marine Corps. Of course. (laughs) Of course. Um, (laughs) And So I did that, and it was also just the quickest thing away from home. None of my friends expected me to join the military. I was a girly girl, football cheerleader, wore pink skirts, (laughs) stilettos every Friday. That was my thing. I would wear high heels every Friday to high school. Um, And so, yeah, when I told people that I wanted to join, nobody took me seriously. Nobody took me seriously until I got back from boot camp. (laughs) So... They were like, oh, okay, you did it. You you meant it. <laughs> what was boot camp like? Um, I have quite a few friends mm-hmm. in the military, uh, and notably a best friend who is currently a lieutenant colonel in the Marines, mm-hmm. who hopefully you will meet one day. Um, yeah, I would love to. Uh, but yeah, what... Uh, how... Yeah, take us through boot camp. What, how, the, the shock and if there was any. Um, my experience from boot camp, and I'm not the only one. I mean, if you had a hard upbringing, boot camp is going to be a different experience for you than other people. Boot camp kind of felt like home. All the yelling and screaming and all of that, none of that phased me. It was not an issue for me at all. In fact, I, I met it with anger. Yeah. So, um, I, I was not submissive. Marine Corps did not break me like it's supposed to break you. Mm-hmm. It made me angry. Because <laughs> um, that's the whole point of boot camp. Yeah. It's to break you down and then build you right back up into <laughs> what they need you to be. Yeah. And instead, it, I was already this little ball of fury and it just piled on top of me. <laughs> and so, um, um, but boot camp is, there's a really common misconception about boot camp in whatever branch I feel is that it's all about physical stuff and it's not there's a lot of physical stuff involved but it's all about rewiring yeah. who you are mm-hmm. and um what it was really nice though because what the marine corps gave me that I didn't get in my high school years was an identity I finally had a label to myself mm-hmm. I finally belonged to a group and we all kept each other safe and that was really great um, and so I was, I was a Marine and I could say that I was something and a part of something and I got to be America's warrior and I loved that. Uh, what, or, and I should probably know this, division did you end, you know, like what My part, MOS. Yeah, what part of the Marines? So my MOS is 3531. I was a combat um, motor vehicle operator. So oh. convoys, resupply grunts with food, ammunition, water 
all of the things that they need mm-hmm. on our front lines. So, yeah, that was really nice. It was, I'm really happy that I did that. I didn't actually pick that. I wanted to do combat camera because I wanted to be able to be in the thick of it and take pictures and because you don't really get to do a lot of those up close and personal roles as a female. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that would be a good way to express myself artistically and also get close to the action. But that didn't work out. Those slots, there aren't many and they fill up very quickly. Sure. Um, so my recruiter said, well, if you sign up for Motor T, you get a $10,000 bonus. And I was like, say That's... say less. <laughs> so um, I did that. And... That's a lot of money at 19. Oh my gosh. a lot of money yeah. right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I'll get into that a little bit later too. Um, but yeah, so I was really happy with that MOS because that did also allow me to get up close and personal. I wasn't on the front lines, but I I got to go up and touch it, you know, yeah. <laughs> every time I went on a convoy. Yeah. I could, you know, resupply people and be a part of it. And actually, my first two months of my deployment, I was attached to a grunt unit. So um, they need females with them in order to inspect or search women or anything oh, because we're not sure. allowed to touch their women, yeah. at least not without their husband's consent, but they often don't give it. Um, so I, I was able to do that. Wow. That's fascinating. Um, where did it take you? Uh, how many years were you? I did four years active. Okay. Where, Um, yeah. Where, where did it take you? So boot camp was in South Carolina and then MOS training was in Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. And then I was stationed in California, uh, Camp Pendleton. Mm -hmm. And then I, deployed to South Helmand province, Afghanistan. Uh, yes, that, yeah, I figured. We, uh, and you met your husband in the Marines, so you both are. Yes, we're both Marines. We are a Marine family. Um, yeah, we actually deployed together. We were in the same platoon. Um, we So we met each other, obviously, before we deployed because we were training together and everything, and we actually did not like each other at all, um, <laughs> as all my great relationships start with uh, hate and resentment. Um, but yeah, so once we were in Afghanistan, you know, you're, you're, your walls all come down. You're very vulnerable when you're in war. And so, um, yeah, he just, he had noticed that I was working really hard one day and was like, oh. So what are you doing later? And we went and got coffee and walked around base and talked for a little while. Um, I'm assuming you didn't go to a bar over there. No, no. But they had this, like, everything is kind of on trailers. So they had this, like, pop-up trailer coffee Mm -hmm. spot called the Green Bean. And, um, yeah, so we got coffee and just sat on a picnic table with our weapons strapped to us and just talked. That is awesome. (laughs) Yeah, it was a good first date. (laughs) Um, give us some stories. I mean, you don't have to get, well, you can actually, you can say whatever you want, but give give us some experiences over in Afghanistan as a woman, because, uh, obviously not a very friendly country to women. No, they're not. Um, so when I was attached to the grunt unit, I was in charge of the well not in charge but we were in charge of the ecp entry control point so it was a pretty big base that i was stationed at 
and there's two different entry control points. There's one where our convoys go in and out, but there's also, we were training the Afghan army. So we had Afghan army on the base and they would have their own civilian contractors come in and resupply them with whatever they needed as far as food and all of their animals that they would slaughter on site and whatever they do. You named one of them, apparently, <laughs> I heard from my wife. You named one of the llamas or something that oh, yeah. you then ate later? Yeah, her name was Princess. <laughs> yep. We bought her for a case of rippets and a $20 bill. And yeah, there was this little hut outside of the ECP because the civilian contractors, they have to sit outside and wait for 24 hours before we let them on base just in case there's any timed bombs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so um, there was this little guy out there in this tiny mud, mud hut that he made and he made foot bread and it's actual bread that he made with his feet it was delicious but he always he always had goats and so if there were any contractors out there that were hungry they would buy these goats and we went to go buy one and um so yeah we bought her and i was i didn't even think anything of it i'd never tried a goat i didn't know i'm just like this innocent 20 year old like mm -hmm. okay we're gonna have a goat <laughs> And I was feeding her cornflakes and milk and water and all of the things. And then I came back the next morning um, after t probably two weeks of having her locked up in this little thing that we set up with some chicken wire. And she was gone. And I was like, where's Princess? And they were like, oh, yeah, they're, uh, they're uh, the Afghan army took her. They're going to. They're going to cook her. And I was like, oh my gosh, what? And so, uh, yeah, later that day, I tried some of Princess, and it wasn't bad. It kind of tastes like pork. It's uh, a little more greasy. Hmm. Um, but yeah, it wasn't bad. But yeah, that was uh, that was an interesting experience. It was just, it, it all went right over my head. <laughs> uh, sorry, continue on any other before I rudely... I wanted you to talk oh, about no, the that's princess fine. story. Um, yeah, so that that first two months of experience when I was there attached to that grunt unit was probably the most intense. Um, because I was with grunts, I got to see a little bit more. I wasn't on patrols or anything like that, um, but we had constant interaction with Afghan civilians and... Um, <clears throat> their contractors and stuff like that and their afghan army because we were teaching them like i said how to do certain things so that they could take care of their own cities and um so one of the things that really shook me was uh there was this taxi cab driver that would come in with his son because it was such a big base we had medical so civilians would come if they needed help and we would treat them and they came probably four or five times and they would just sit there and wait with us at the ECP while they were waiting for their person, their, or their fare to come. Mm -hmm. And um, so I would hang out with this little boy named Samula and he was going to a, a school that was teaching him English. So he knew pretty good English. He knew his whole alphabet. He was probably, I want to say nine or 10 years old. But I formed a relationship with him, and his dad had asked me to take him home with me. And, oh, man. <laughs> like, I don't want my son to be here. This place isn't safe. Like, will you adopt him? Can you take him home with you? I'm like, I can't just 
throw them in my bag. Like, you can't come <laughs> home with me. It doesn't work like that. Yeah. Um, but that was really hard. And one day we saw his car come up and uh, apparently this little boy was in a van f- full of people and it had gotten blown up by an, a pressure plate IED. That's probably the most common yeah. over there. And, uh, yeah, his arm was, like, blown off. Yeah. And so I was like, just to see this child in so much pain. Oh, God, and then imagine. his dad, you know, everybody talks about, you know, the screams of a mother when you, they lose their child or something. But this dad, like, was gut-wrenching. It was yeah. just a really awful situation. So to see a child like that so hurt was traumatizing but he got help so that was nice um yeah so that was pretty hard i found a lot of black tar heroin because we had to search the civilian trucks Mm -hmm. before Mm -hmm. they came onto the base completely and yeah they would have they would hide black tar heroin in any crevice we would rip these trucks apart searching and yeah, there wasn't a, a day that went by that we didn't find something, whether it be alcohol, heroin, hashish, whatever it was. So we yeah, we confiscated a lot of stuff. Um, what is there anything over there that or that you experienced where somebody, you know, over here like me would go and how do I I'm trying to think of how I ask this question is there anything you can describe where we would go no way uh i would never have imagined that in afghanistan and i like obviously it's a very like uh what would you i mean it's a very old civilization very Um, very old like so and they hold their traditions close yeah yeah um so like you know uh just a, a typical person growing up here uh doesn't imagine there to be skyscrapers Mm -hmm. although are there any in some cities over there or probably in Kabul okay oh sure 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 um yeah but I was we were out in the middle of nowhere yeah all desert (laughs) okay so but well so I guess to that question or to that point like is there anything where you would go I, I would never have expected that yeah, actually, um, my first convoy. So after I was done with that being attached to that grunt unit, I went back to my regular platoon and started doing Motor T stuff. Um, and Motor T is short for motor transportation. Mm-hmm. And my first convoy on deployment, after two months of being there, we went through a place called Disneyland. And they called it Disneyland because there's all these kids. And... It's basically like when I say the middle of nowhere, I mean the middle of nowhere. And so, but randomly, sporadically, there will be these little towns with a few mutt huts and a road going through it. Well, this specific town, we called it Disneyland because the elders would sit outside of their mud huts and all these kids would be running around and all the elders would have to do is point at our trucks and the kids would run up to our trucks. We're going 35, 40 miles an hour run on top of run to our trucks climb up it and steal chains like 
heavy, heavy tow trucking chains steal whatever they could off of our trucks. <laughs> and my corporal, who is my A driver, was like, hey, so just so you know, we're going through this spot called Disneyland. If any kid runs at your truck, don't stop. You keep going. And I was like, all right, okay. And this kid, he ran up to my truck in front of it, ran at me head on and just stood there. And my corporal was like, don't you stop, Hill. Don't stop. And I didn't. He's actually, and then he told me to speed up. So I went faster and this kid laid flat down and my whole truck went over him. Good Lord. They, yeah, they do it to scare you. He was trying to get me to slow down so that yeah. he could grab more stuff off my truck. Wow. And the elders <laughs> would facilitate all of this. They would just go and point at our trucks and say, go th- go get that for me. Go get that for me. And they'd steal it and run back as fast as... These were strong kids. Mm-hmm. Little kids just stealing stuff off of our trucks. It was insane. It was the most insane convoy. And it was my first. It was just a very <laughs> surreal thing. To see kids do something like that. Is there anything, is there a, um, is there a less intense or scary thing where (laughs) you would go, I would not have expected that? Mm. Or is it, I mean, I I know I've, you know, we've all heard it's like, I mean, you know, other than like the Arctic's, uh, (laughs) like the roughest Mm-hmm. most uninhabitable terrain almost on the planet well going through these towns we had already been there for so long um just the military in general the military presence and so we had already built them waterways and everything mm-hmm. um but it just it blew my mind how they lived to live in a mud hut when you come from such a advanced country yeah to see people still live like that, that's a culture shock within itself. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, the smell. The smell is definitely different. Um, they have a very distinct smell to their food, like the curry oh, smell. Yeah. Um, Quite good every time I've ever had it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they have, it's really good food. Oh, yeah. Um, it's just the way that they live. Yeah. That that is yeah. it's so different. Sure. It's so different. Um how long were you in Afghanistan? Seven months. Oh, Marine okay. Corps deployments are seven months. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Um I don't anything else you wanna uh, talk about for the Marines or Afghanistan or mm. Well as a woman, they did view me differently. Um, they looked at me like I... Some, I got looks of disdain because I was a woman with a weapon and I was bossing them around. Oh, and as in the Afghanistan people. As in the people, yeah. Sure, they, sure, sure, sure. Some people oh, didn't yeah. take kindly to that. But what were they going to do, mm-hmm. you know? So it's like they would just give... They'd just mean mug me, you know? Um, but then there were some men that would look at me like I was a goddess. Like, who is this woman with red hair? All they see is brunettes <laughs> all yeah. day long, yeah. you know? it's they, they all, um, you know, have the same attributes. Yeah. And so this fair-skinned, red-headed woman, some, sometimes they would look at me like, 
what is that? Yeah. Like I was a, an alien almost. American devil. <laughs> I know. Um, but yeah, so that was uh, very interesting. I also got to uh, meet two Taliban members that were working with our intel. And that was pretty cool. I tried their dip. Um, I smoked at the time, as a lot of Marines do. Mm-hmm. And their their dip is very different. It's dry and it's very green, like grass. It's like it looks like crushed up grass. It's interesting. Yeah, and it tastes it tastes funny, um, but it was good. But yeah, we just they they were some of the people that looked at me like who who is this girl? What mm-hmm. why is she here? Like this is a man's world, you know? Yeah. Um, so that was kind of funny, but they were polite. They were they were respectful, but yeah, they were they were helping our intel people, and that was a very interesting um, thing. You don't get that side of it when you're a pogue. Personal, it's personnel other than grunt. That's mm-hmm. a pogue. Okay. And so convoy like motor T doesn't work with intel, but being attached to that grunt unit, I did, and it's like. These people, these Taliban members would come in and say, hey, so we're having a big meeting at this place, um, at this time, this location, whatever. And so we would just drop a bomb on them. Also, they were, so when you say Taliban members, they were helping the U.S. military Oh, yeah, they were helping us. their... Right. <laughs> who is now in control. Yeah. Over there. Well, and it's, it's like any kind of regime. You're going to have people that are part of it that yeah. don't want to be a part of it. Yeah. it. Sometimes it's just out of survival. And oh, those totally. are the people that help yeah. us. Um, so, yeah, that, that was interesting to meet higher ups like that, that had so much power in the Marine Corps and so much power in the Taliban to even be a part of it. It was like, Wow. There are a lot of heavy hitters in here. <laughs> yeah, that is. Okay. Yeah. Um, so now we will, let's move on to your transition, um, or numerous transitions, I guess you a could lot. say. Yeah, a lot. From a once Bernie supporting mm-hmm. socialist. Oh, yeah. To a Trump loving, <laughs> Trumper, you know. Attach whatever terrible adjectives you want to to that, which yep. I'm sure plenty mm-hmm. of our detractors will. Uh, sobriety, mm-hmm. um, your religious awakening. But let's start with uh, Bernie to Trump. What? So what made Bernie make sense in the very in, in your in your beginning stages of Bernieism? Well. And was this after the Marines? Yes, this was after the Marines. I was uh I was pretty I would I didn't really I wasn't political in the mm-hmm. military. Um I didn't join to fight for my country. That was a bonus. I joined to get away. Mm-hmm. Um so politic po- or politics didn't phase me. I just did not care. Mm-hmm. I did not vote. I didn't <clears throat> exercise my right to vote until 2016. Or no, I'm sorry. 2020. In a presidential um, election, my first actual time ever voting for anything was the midterms when all the Kavanaugh stuff was going on. Yeah. Um, so I I was a very broken person. Mm-hmm. And I feel that a lot of people who have unresolved trauma, Bernie speaks to those people. 
because he talks about unfairness and the 1% of the 1% and mm-hmm. which he, he is a part of which he is a part of <laughs> yes he has like more than two homes and a, a whole plethora of all fancy things so mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it's funny too. perfect for a socialist dictator oh definitely definitely um but i i didn't know any of that mm-hmm. you know it's just he he spoke to those broken parts of me and I felt like life was unfair. And he validated that for me. And, um, but I didn't really know a lot about him. I was also going through this very strange vegan phase. I had seen a slaughterhouse video. Oh, and, um, <laughs> yeah, don't watch those. Um, so that was also something very triggering for me. So all of this injustice of like the animal world and our world and my world, Bernie kind of like, just solidified all of that for me Mm -hmm. um and then i had a uh an experience i was a trigger warning for anybody i'm gonna go over some sexual assault stuff but i was kidnapped and raped in minneapolis i was held hostage for like three or four hours by an illegal immigrant and that was very eye-opening for me and it but it also triggered my faith um while it was happening i kept begging for god and it was like i was such an atheist Mm -hmm. um from high school on and like when i say atheist i mean militant atheist like richard dawkins the god delusion I'm not familiar with Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins. Yeah, Yeah. he's the one who coined the term um, militant atheist, saying, you know, like, it's not good enough to just be atheist. We have to tell people why God is stupid and why they should be atheist. And sounds like (laughs) anti-racism. Yeah. Ibram X. Kendi's. It's not enough to just not be racist. It, it's not. I <laughs> have to, to shove it down your throat. The other way. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And and I have to shove it down your throat. Mm -hmm. Mm. So um, that had happened and that kind of just shattered a lot of beliefs that I had. The utopian. The Yeah, the utopia in general. Just, but it was very awakening yeah. to me. Sure. And then when Trump announced that he was going to run and he was talking about illegal immigration, I was like, yeah, it is a problem. It is. <laughs> I am I'm proof that it's an issue. Yeah. Um, and so that was kind of when I started to make the shift. I wasn't fully conservative then, even when Trump won. I I didn't He didn't act like a conservative. He didn't he really didn't. talk like one. He talked Mm-mm. like I had no idea which way he was gonna go. <laughs> to me he was just the the guy that was on the show what celebrity apprentice yeah celebrity apprentice like that's Among all he things. was to me and in home alone too <laughs> oh yeah yeah home alone <laughs> he's they, he's also in the little out. rascals was uh, he? yeah yeah he's I one of the kids parents <laughs> yeah the oh, rich wow. kid in little rascals that's his dad and he huh. doesn't show up till the end of the movie it's hilarious yeah my uh-huh. kids love that movie and so <laughs> i got to watch it again like through their eyes and then at the end of it trump showed up and i was like well, since when <laughs> don't even remember that but yeah so i didn't uh i didn't fully shift over until i kind of saw the way he started to run the office Mm -hmm. and i was like wow this guy is making serious changes like 
It's showing in my bank account. It's showing in gas prices. It's showing in the economy. Like there are so many pros to what's going on around me right now. Mm-hmm. And also he was speaking to the Ill- illegal immigration. And that was a huge thing for me. I was all about building the wall. I don't think really anybody knew until he brought it up that sanctuary cities mm-hmm. were a real thing. Yeah. One of my brother's like far, far left friends even admitted that he didn't know what they were or he didn't even know of them until, as he uh, described Trump as our esteemed president, started bringing to attention. Right. So, And one of the biggest things that he did was lift the veil Mm -hmm. over a lot of us. (laughs) Or a lot of things. He's a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Not an angel. He's not an angel. But... That's not why people voted him in. No. I, I understand the appeal to having someone who's respectful and kind and all of the things that you would want in a president tight and a, you know, a nice bow. Oh, yeah. But that's not the guy. He's also defending the country. I'd rather have someone who's not so nice defending our country. Mm-hmm. Um, you need to have a backbone. And we haven't really had a lot of those in office. No. Especially right now. Yep. Um. So my next question, but you kind of already. I was gonna. When did the cracks develop in your Bernie view? But obviously, you just mm-hmm. kind of went through how. <laughs> well, I mean, it's so funny because everyone always says that you don't go to Facebook to change your mind, but that is really where I started to change my mind. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Um, I would get into these huge political debates and. When people presented me with facts on basic economics and statistics on, you know, racial inequality and police brutality Mm -hmm. and all that, it was like, wow, they're really lying to me. And then I got angry, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. and it was like, okay, I'm going to go all the way right now because all the way left is they don't have it going on. Mm -hmm. They're, they're lying to me and it's, it. It's thinly veiled virtue signaling. It, it's not real. Mm-hmm. Saying something shouldn't make you feel good about yourself. It's about doing something. Mm-hmm. And you don't get to sit here and tell people that you're virtuous because you don't care how they live, but at the same time hold traditional values because a lot of pe- a lot of the people that do hold those views do have traditional values. Um explain the re- so the other transition from your militant atheism to mm-hmm. being as religious as you are now like where explain that uh well what made me atheist is was that i couldn't see it i had to see it to believe it and it didn't occur to me until the whole uh kidnapping thing happened that I wasn't going to, you're not going to find someone you're not looking for. That's not mm-hmm. how it works. And so I finally started looking for him. Mm-hmm. And there were just little things in my life that an atheist would say, well, you can't use God to explain that. But it, at the end of the day, it's the only thing that made sense. Mm-hmm. And I I don't believe in coincidences. I never have, even when I was atheist. Mm-hmm. It's not really a coincidence to me that in that moment, something good came from it 
but something did. And it kind of, uh, because I, I was, I had to grow up so fast in my childhood. When I turned 18 and I was in the military, that's when I got to be a kid. It was very backwards. And so it took that experience for me to realize that I wasn't invincible, where people usually find that out a lot sooner. Mm -hmm. And when I had that moment, that's when I found God, or at least when the door opened for me to find him. Mm -hmm. And it just made me feel safe. It, mm-hmm. The world can be such a scary place when you're so pessimistic and um, full of hate. And it's so easy to blame God for everything. Mm-hmm. The, the people that say, oh, there's childhood cancer and there's this and there's that. Why would God allow for that? And God didn't allow for that. He, he allowed free will. And a lot of those things are our own doing. That's not God's doing. That's man's doing. Mm-hmm. Um. And so it took a lot of that to finally hit me and be like, okay, he's here for me and I know that. And I don't need anybody to tell me that because they can't see it, that it's not real because I do. Uh, Take us through your journey to sobriety. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. So sobriety was a tough one. I knew that I was an alcoholic before I even turned 21. Um, it runs in my family. I was going to meetings when I got back from Afghanistan. I, w- I went through a very hard time after Afghanistan. I did not transition well back mm-hmm. into the world. When you come back, you're still in the military, especially if you're active. So transitioning can be a little bit smoother because you still have everyone around you. You're not just like thrust back into the civilian world. Whereas mm-hmm. if you were, if you were a reservist, that's how it would happen. Um, but I, I did not open up about a lot of things that I had seen or what I had been through. And so I turned to alcohol and yeah. Marines drink hard. Yeah. They, that's what we're <laughs> known for. We're known for eating crayons and drinking a lot of booze. <laughs> like an iron worker. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> So that was really tough for me. And so I decided I was going to go to AA meetings. Um, I was 21 going to AA meetings. And I was like, this is not good for me. And I was actually married when I was in the military. I didn't get to that. But I was married. So I was living off base. And so I decided to go to AA meetings off base. And that was really nice for me. It was a safe place. They offered AA meetings on base. But Mm -hmm. when you're around other Marines... you just feel judged, especially as a female. Mm-hmm. Um, it was kind of, I, I did not want to do it on base, but my lieutenant came back and said, hey, you know, we'd feel a lot better if you were doing this on base because you're not on base. We don't know if you're actually attending these meetings and nobody's there to keep accountability. So you can't do that anymore. We're not saying you can't do AA meetings. We're just saying you can't do it off base. And looking back, that makes sense. Yeah. You know, I... Yeah, yeah whatever, but I wasn't comfortable with it. So Mm -hmm. I didn't go to AA meetings. I just decided to keep drinking. And I was smoking a lot of spice too. Um, just synthetic weed. Oh (laughs) yeah. It's, it's big in California. Got it. Um, but yeah, it's just synthetic weed. It's basically just chemicals thrown on catnip. Mm. It was not fun, (laughs) but, uh, so I did a lot of that 
And um, when I got out, I, I was I got pregnant the winter before I got out. And <clears throat> so I didn't have any other choice. I had to get sober. Like that was mm-hmm. it. She she was the most important thing. Yep. And um, after I had had her, the night where I got kidnapped, that was the first time that I had drank since I had her or before I had her. Um, I was just going out with some girlfriends and wanted to hang out. And I thought I could drink like I had always drank. Mm-hmm. I, I went I went balls to the wall like, I can handle this. I know I can because <laughs> I've done it before. But mm-hmm. I hadn't drank, drank for almost a year. Yeah. Um, well, now. No, a year. Yeah. I hadn't drank for a year. So I just went way downhill. And then after that all happened, I kept on drinking until I got pregnant with Felix. And then again with Vincent and it was just on and off um just this downward spiral yeah and I couldn't justify getting sober to myself because I just wasn't ready I was Mm -hmm. in my 20s it was like I have so much partying left in me who gets (laughs) who gets sober when they're in their 20s (laughs) um and it was also very hard for me to get sober because anytime I had hurt anyone those people had hurt me too. Mm-hmm. So I could use that as an excuse. Oh, sure. It wasn't until I hurt someone that had never hurt me where I was like, it's a problem. <laughs> like this, this can't happen. Now that, now that I've hurt someone that has never hurt me, now I know it's me. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't justify this one. So that's when I decided to turn it around. I finally got sick of my own S. H I T. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I yeah. had I just got sick of myself. I did not like who I was. I didn't like the mom I was giving my kids. I didn't like the partner that I was being. Mm-hmm. Um it just wasn't fair to anybody and it it took me hurting someone that close to me mm-hmm. that was so good to me my whole life for me to be like, No, th- I'm done. Yeah. So well, good for you. Um, yeah. When I, I feel like I remember um, Kate just seeing something that you had posted. Well, mm-hmm. when was the first time you had anything or or whatever? Like, when was your first time not being sober? Like, how old? Oh, um, well, my first cigarette was in Annandale at a porta potty with my cousins, and that was at twelve. The first time I had ever got drunk, I was 13. Um, And the first time I did any hard drugs wasn't until I was in the military um, in California. They're they're around every corner. Mm -hmm. It's so easy to find drugs in California. And, I mean, we didn't get drug tested that often, but we knew what we could and couldn't get away with. Um, So, yeah, it it was a lot of experimenting, but I didn't do a lot in high school like other kids. Um, my partying years, I wasn't allowed to party. I was at home helping with my sisters, mm-hmm. so I didn't get to go out very often. There were some nights that I did, and I had a, a good enough agreement with my mom that if I was going to party, she knew where I was. Uh, I, I never lied to her about where I was, but I was only ever drinking and maybe trying weed. Uh, but I didn't do anything harder than that. Yeah, it wasn't until I got out where I experienced other drugs and I was like, mm, 
I've done almost everything except for heroin. So <laughs> that was the one thing I knew I was never going to touch because I knew that I would love it too much. I knew and, there was no turning back from that. And well, yeah, uh, I would imagine <laughs> that's a hard one. Yeah. Um, and then, did, so would this have been after you saw all of it in Afghanistan? Um, I had tried ecstasy and Molly before that. I had gone to a few raves while I was um, married. Mm -hmm. And I had a, a girlfriend from high school that flew out to spend some time with me and she wanted to party. So we all went up to Temecula and went to a rave and did some stuff. But... I actually didn't try... Cocaine was my other drug of choice. I didn't try that until after all of the kids were born. Mm. Um, Will and I were split up for about two years. And, I, yeah, I did coke for a while. Well, I'm happy uh, that you are sober and Me our too. neighbor. And yeah. <laughs> living a much better life. Yes. But let's now... Uh, well, We'll wrap up with uh, some good news in that you are now a business owner in Wright County. So take yeah. us through, uh, yeah, how, where you started, um, how it led to you now owning your own business. And then, uh, yeah, I'll, I have a few more questions <laughs> after that, but take us there. Yeah, that's fine. Um, so I was a stay at home mom for a while after the whole kidnapping thing. I decided I was just going to be a stay at home mom. I didn't want to work. I didn't feel safe in the world. I was a recluse. Um, yeah. So I was like, you know what? Nope. I'm, and I projected everything onto my kids as well. So anything that had ever happened to me bad, I had this immense fear that it was going <laughs> to happen to Zoe and oh, to yeah. my kids. And so I thought it was best if I just stayed home. Like there's... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep them safe from all threats by shielding mm -hmm. them from the world. But really, I was just not socializing them properly. Mm -hmm. um, and so after I had had Vincent, I, was I had finally been through some therapy. And the guy had been caught and deported and all of that stuff. And I was finally feeling a little more safe. And so I decided to go back to work. And Will was working at this shop called Baggy Joe in the shipping and receiving area. And he was like, well, they're hiring here for machine operators. It looks pretty cool. It might be something that you like. And we could carpool, mm -hmm. save money on gas. And so I went in and I talked to them and I got the job right away. And I fell in love with it. I love what I do. Um, Which, explain that a little bit. Yeah, so I do uh, commercial embroidery. So if your school has any kind of apparel or your business has their logo on their shirt or if you just want to put a name on a stocking or a hat mm -hmm. or something like that, that's what I do. You come into my shop and we take care of all that kind of stuff, like team shirts and all that. Um, <clears throat> and so I finally found something that was that I was good at. Uh, I, I haven't found a lot of things that I've been good at in my life, and that's one of them. And I really enjoyed it, too. And so I I don't work. I, I do what I love. Mm -hmm. And that's really nice for me. <clears throat> and so after I had worked there for a little while, Will and I moved around a little bit. And I decided to work at a couple other shops that were closer to us at the time. And then... Um, 
so we live in Buffalo, obviously, mm-hmm. and I was working at a shop in Eden Prairie for about three years, three and a half years, and it was just getting to be too much. The drive was too much. Well, I shouldn't say that the drive was too much. I loved my commute. I loved being in the car for an hour all by myself with no kids, no nothing. But at the end of the day, though, it was just like so much time had been taken away from them. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't, I was just drained. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't being the mom that I wanted to be because I was just so exhausted. So I decided that I wanted to do something a little bit closer to home. And there's a shop in Buffalo and I had gotten a job there. I had surgery this last fall and I did a um, an interview with them while I was in recovery and got the job right away. And so I let my employer know like, hey, I'm gonna be leaving around this time. And I let the owner of Baggy Joe know. And because I'm close with them and their family, their, their son and their daughter are two of my best friends. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> so I, told her and she was like well i'm actually thinking about selling baggy joe and i was like wow i would way rather own my own shop than work for someone else um one of the things that was also starting to bother me about the other place that i was at other than the you know spending time away from my kids was um just the boss i loved him we well we had a very love-hate relationship um but (laughs) As lots of times. As, <laughs> yeah, as most people have to deal with. But it reminded me a lot of the military in a sense of like, he didn't pay me to think. And I had so many ideas about how things could run more efficiently or anything. And I would bring them up and he would hear me. He'd listen to me, but we would never try anything different. Mm-hmm. And so it just didn't feel, I didn't feel valued. Um, and now I finally get paid to think. And it's my job to make sure everything runs the way it should. Mm-hmm. And I really like that. And so, yeah, that's how that happened. So what I uh, think would be incredibly interesting is assuming that my tenure in this position of Wright County GOP media coordinator mm-hmm. um, and I continue doing these podcasts, which hopefully this will show up uh, at some point here once it gets okayed by the board um would be to follow your um adventures as a business owner um hopefully there will be a a different party in control Mm -hmm. come 26 yes 26 yes uh, but you know well uh I, i think we should just check in with you and do do you have anything uh you've owned it since january Yep, January. Um, can you give us any insight as to anything going on as a business owner under this current administration that seems to really like your old way of <laughs> thinking about the world, i.e. Uh, the Bernie <laughs> way of <laughs> controlling? and Not really. Honestly, it's... Everything that has happened through COVID and there being, you know, more liberal society right now that we're living in, it hasn't affected my business. But yeah, so it, anything, there's a lot of mom and pop shops or just people that like to do embroidery out of their basement 
And COVID really affected those people. Those people don't have those businesses anymore or they had to give up their hobby because it was just too expensive and they weren't turning it around as fast as they would like. But the people that did survive it are doing very, very well. Oh, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Like less of you, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I just, it would be, you know, fascinating to check in with you every now and then, especially if, hopefully, you know, who, who knows who our uh, next hopeful conservative governor will be in yeah. Minnesota. Kendall, Walter, maybe. <laughs> it's really um, hard with all of the inner city people. And it's kind of funny at the same time, too, that it's such a democratic city, but yet all of the democratic people that voted for those policies are now moving out to our more country, rural areas. Yeah. Um, it's very interesting. If they start turning our counties blue, I'm going to be very upset. <laughs> yeah, that's why we moved uh, from South St. Paul to Buffalo. To mm -hmm. So <laughs> that's why I'm uh, one of the main uh, one of the main things I spoke about in going after this position was my uh, I feel like sometimes when you live out here for a long time maybe you can't see the forest for the trees mm -hmm. and you just take it for granted out here the quiet living the safety it's so easy to but when you've seen <laughs> you've come from and not that I like grew up in South St. Paul but we lived in South St. Paul for mm -hmm. five years uh, <clears throat> and just I'm very invested in keeping it quiet and red yeah. up here uh, but yeah we'll uh, we'll check in with you and uh, like I, I think I or what I was trying to get at was that if we do get new leadership come the next governor's race it would be very interesting to check in with you and see what has changed as a business owner under oh yeah and i'm sure right much of it will leaning. with you know just me having more time under my belt mm -hmm. you know i've only oh, got yeah. a few months in right now very so it's true. hard to very say true. but yeah it would definitely be an interesting conversation to have yep okay well um i don't have a sign off yet because i can't use the one that i used to uh, in my previous endeavor podcasting. So at some point I will think of an outro, if you will. But uh, thank you to Alyssa, uh, my neighbor, my lovely neighbor, um, for coming by and taking us through a very, very interesting, fascinating, and uh, <laughs> at times, uh, you know, difficult existence Yeah, <laughs> that you had growing up um is there anything yeah i don't know give us one last thought um just remember that facts are more important than feelings your feelings can still be valid two things can always be true at the same time you can have validated feelings and then the facts can also be the facts and it's so easy to be uh triggered in this society if you have unresolved trauma and that's kind of my main theme right now yeah. in my life is if you're if you're triggered by something it's because you have unresolved trauma so fix that before you give out your opinions because i promise they'll change <laughs> that's wonderful that is spectacular okay everybody well thank you uh for listening hopefully this will show up once everything gets uh okayed by the general board and 
we will see you next time. Goodbye.